this morning is um, kind of a similar idea to last week, but Paul kind of Paul expounds upon it a little bit more, and so we're going to be looking at this idea of death and resurrection and our unity with Christ in that. So there's going to be some overlap. There's going to be some, once again, some similar, some repetition from last week, but then we're going to unfold new layers um, when it comes to this idea. So if we think back to verse 4 from last week, um, he tells us, right, that we share in the death of Christ. But he doesn't explicitly tell us that we're going to share in his resurrection, right? He says we share in his death, but we, so that we too might walk in a newness of life. So there is this hint of the resurrection. Um, and so he, he, he shares that with us, but then now he's going to very far more explicitly tell us what it means then to not only share in his death, but to share and his resurrection. Um, so there's a couple of things to notice here right at the beginning. It's really important. The first thing is that we share in a death like his, and we share in a resurrection like his. So it's not that we are, this is not a one-for-one comparison. This is, it's similar, but it's different. And it seems pretty obvious, right? Because none of us are going to physically die and physically resurrect in the same way that Christ has done. The thing that we are sharing in right now is not that our body dies and our body resurrects here and now. One day this is going to happen. I don't know when or how or all the mechanisms behind how that happens. Um, but there is going to be a physical resurrection. But what he's talking about here, what's happening now is that it's a spiritual death and it's a spiritual resurrection. So it's similar, but it's different. You see, because what we were is that we were slaves to our sin, right? We were completely consumed by evil thoughts, by evil desires. Uh, Genesis 6, I I forget what verse it is, but God looks out across the land, right, and he makes this assessment. And he says, "The, the intent of man's heart is only evil continuously. I mean, he just like over and over and over is like making it sound as bad as possible. That's what we were. The intention of our hearts were only evil continually. That's what it was before Jesus. So when we hear the word slave to sin, think about it in those terms. Everything we did, everything we thought, every, every part of, of who we were was sinful and it was evil. So the death that we are dying is to that. When we have faith... When we repent and we believe in Jesus, that's what we die to. We die to that idea, to that mentality, to that life where everything we do, everything we say, everything we think is only evil continuously. That's who we were and we have died to that. That's what our spirit was. And so there is this spiritual death that is happening. And when we die in a death like Christ, not exactly like it, but when our spirit dies... We come awake, right? God grants us faith. He opens our eyes. Our spirit is made new. We are resurrected. The spirit inside of us, the the thing that causes us to act and causes us to think, the old one is dead, and now there is a new spirit in us, being guided by the Holy Spirit. And so our resurrection is also like Christ. Because when we died, we were completely consumed with sin. But on the other side... We have defeated death through Christ. We have defeated sin through Christ. And those are the things that Christ does, right? He goes to the grave bearing all of our sins, covered in it. 
But when he comes back out, that's all left there. Death is left there. Our sins are left there. And so our resurrection, our death and our resurrection are like Christ. Now what's really interesting, how many, how many of you guys um, remember or have read or think about, so when Jesus comes back to life, right, when he is resurrected, he starts doing some really strange things, right? This new body that he has is almost like a superhero. He's not acting the same way that he used to. Twice in just the book of, just a chapter, chapter 20 of the book of John, Jesus appears just out of nowhere in a room full of people with all the doors locked. You remember that? How often do you think about it? The guys who are walking down the road to Damascus, he just appears beside them, and they don't recognize him. These are guys who would have known him. So he's like got a disguise on, and he's walking through walls, and he's teleporting, and he's doing all kinds of stuff that he never did before. So he goes into the grave, and he comes out, Still physical, right? He eats the fish. They're t- I mean, he still has the holes in his hands and his feet. Have you ever thought about the fact that those wounds are still there and Thomas is touching them and he's not bleeding and it's not painful? Like something is different about him on a physical level when he comes back. That resurrection changed his physical demeanor and how he acts and how he interacts in this world. He's almost like a superhero, right? He's just doing things that he never did before. And the same kind of idea is true for us. And that's what we talked about last week. Our spirit, we have this spiritual superpower with the Holy Spirit being given to us that we can resist sin when we never were able to before. We can fight back against that temptation. We can win, right? We've talked, we talked about that pretty extensively last week. This idea that in our resurrection, we have power in the Holy Spirit that I am very guilty of not tapping into, very guilty of forgetting about, and just thinking, the only difference between who I was and who I am is that now I'm forgiven and before I wasn't. There's so much more to salvation than that. The Holy Spirit resides in us. He gives us powers that we had no ability, we didn't have before. We're able to fight sin. We're able to resist these things. So remember that we share in a death and a resurrection like Christ. We come out a new creation. The second thing to notice from verse 5 especially is that this will certainly happen. It's amazing how important single words can be if we read through stuff too quickly we miss that kind of stuff right we read past it and we just sort of well what what does it mean that if we have if we are united in a death like his we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his it's important it's, it's, it's extremely important to notice that word and to understand what it means. I, many of you, maybe all of you, believe in and understand this idea that once we have been saved, we cannot lose that salvation. There's nothing that can take that away. There's nothing that can remove the faith or the belief that we have in Jesus. And this, I think, is one of the texts that really points this out. If we are united in a death like his, we will certainly be united in his resurrection. Not probably, not if you, if you do all of the good things and avoid all of the bad things, then you can maintain that salvation. But you have it, and you will certainly share in his resurrection. It's going to happen. 
It's a certainty because God said it is. Not, not because you or I are like somehow good enough to, to, in order to maintain that salvation. We talked about this a, a while back, but it is, it is maintained by the grace of God. And so we will certainly share in it. When we truly die to sin, when there is genuine repentance, when there is real faith, when we are united with Christ, we will share in his resurrection. And we don't get there yet, but verses 9 and 10 say that Christ will never die again. The, die, the death that he died, he died once for all. Never going to happen again. If we're united in a death like his, we will never die again. The spiritual death that happened, the old self being put off and the new self coming on, that never, ever, ever has to happen again. We certainly share in his resurrection. That means that no matter how deep that pit is that you find yourself in, no matter how far you have followed sin off of the path, but you're still loving and trusting in Jesus, that God is still there. He hasn't abandoned you. He doesn't look and say, well, you hit the hundredth sin or the thousandth sin, so I'm done with you. You're over. Faith gone, repealed. None of that is true. The promises that we will certainly share in his resurrection. Now verse 6 starts with a very dangerous set of words. He says, we know. This is powerful, but it's also dangerous, right? You see, we know a lot of things, but many times we don't act as if we know them. We know that we have the Holy Spirit in us. But we forget to act like that. We forget to tap into his power. We forget to pray to the Lord that he would strengthen us in our times of struggle. We know a lot of things, but we act very differently sometimes. We live contrary to what we know. So I think the first question, most important, do you know that your old self was crucified with Christ? It's important that you understand what that means. It's important that you know that that knowledge is in your brain because if the knowledge isn't there, you're not going to act upon it, right? So we first off, we have to know that this is true. We have to believe it. And then we have to, we have to make it a reality in our lives. You see, this idea that when, when in our resurrection, right, that the, that the Holy Spirit is in us, we are capable of doing things we weren't capable of doing before. We are capable of resisting sin. We're capable of fighting these things. And so we have to do it. We have to make that a reality in our life. Knowing that we died to our sin is not enough. We have to believe it. We have to act upon the knowledge that we have. Paul also uses the word, our old self was crucified with him. Yet again, it's a word, right? And if we read past it too quickly and we don't think about what that means, I mean, think about what it was for you to walk out of that darkness and into the light. Sometimes the church, we romanticize this. This is the most glorious, and the, it, it is. It is the most glorious, and it's the best thing that's ever happened to you. But it's also the hardest thing that probably every single one of us has ever done. We walk away from everything we knew and everything we thought was good because God says all of that thing, all of those things that you thought were good and right, they're the opposite. They're broken. But let me show you what is good. So we walk out of that darkness 
And we walk into the light. And we have to change everything, or at least be willing to change everything about ourself. Our old self was not just like, ah, it's no big deal. We're just going to, we'll kill that thing off. It'll be fine. It's a crucifixion. It's painful. And it's difficult. Now, it's definitely not on par with the crucifixion that Christ, right? I'm not, I'm not trying to put us on a pedestal or, or, or anywhere level with him. But he uses the word on purpose. I, I mean, I don't know. He must be using this word on purpose because it's difficult. And what I'm, the reason that I bring this up is because, look, if you're here this morning and you're not a believer, don't think that that's going to be the easiest thing in the world. You're not going to be like, oh, man, rainbows and unicorns and this is, this is the greatest thing that's ever happened. It is, and it's the hardest thing that's ever happened. It will hurt. It will be hard and it will be difficult. And that hardened and that difficultness, it continues on your entire life, right? We all recognize that. You've been a believer for 20, 30, 40 years. You don't get to a place like, oh, finally, I'm done sinning. I know more, no more temptation. Everything is just going perfectly. I never get mad. I never get frustrated. Life is perfect. We're going to fight this until our dying breath, right? We're going to fight temptation. We're going to fight sin. It is a difficult, difficult thing. I want to read to you an excerpt. It's a little bit long. This is longer than I would normally do, but I think it's really helpful. This is an excerpt from The Great Divorce um, by C.S. Lewis. So if you've never read this book, um, the idea behind this book is that you have a bunch of ghosts from hell. I mean, so the theology is terrible, so don't, don't think about this on a theological level. But he writes this, it's a fictional book, right? The, all these ghosts from hell, they get on a bus and they go to the outskirts of heaven and angels meet them there. And there's all these conversations between angels and the ghosts and the angels are trying to convince them, um, look, the, the life you're living is no good. Let me help you. Let me, let me show you what it means to be a real person. And, you know, that, that's the premise of the book. And so what we see here is an interaction between one of the ghosts and one of the angels. So this is the narrator speaking. He says, I saw coming towards us a ghost who carried something on his shoulder. Like all the ghosts, he was unsubstantial, but they differed from one another um, as smokes differ. Some had been whitish. This one was dark and oily. What sat on his shoulder was a little red lizard, and it was twitching its tail like a whip, and it was whispering things in his ear. As we, as we caught sight of him, he turned his head to the reptile with a snarling of impatience. Quiet, I tell you. It wagged its tail, and it continued to whisper him. And then the go- he ceased snarling and presently began to smile. And then he turned and started to limp westward, away from the mountains. Off so soon, said a voice. And the speaker was more or less in shape, but more or less human shape, but larger than a man, and so bright that I could hardly look at him. His presence smote on my eyes and on my body too, for there was heat coming from him as well as light, like the morning sun at the beginning of a tyrannous summer day. Ah, yes, I'm off, said the ghost. Thanks for all your hospitality, but it's no good, you see. I told this little chap, here he indicated to the lizard, that he'd have to be quiet if he came, which he insisted on doing. Of course, his stuff won't do here, I realize that, but he won't stop. I just have to go home. Would you like me to make him quiet, said the flaming spirit angel, as I now understood. Of course I would, said the ghost. Then I will kill him, said the angel, taking a step forward. Whoa, look out, you're burning me, keep away, said the ghost, retreating. Don't you want him killed? Well, you didn't say anything about killing him at first. I hardly meant to bother you with anything so drastic as that. It's the only way, said the angel, whose burning hands were now very close to the lizard. Shall I kill it? 
Well, that's a further question. You see, I'm open to consider it, but it's a new point, isn't it? I mean, for the moment, I was only thinking about silencing it because up here, well, it's so embarrassing. May I kill it? Well, there's time to discuss that later. There is no time. May I kill it? Oh, please, I never meant to be such a nuisance. Please really don't bother. Look, it's gone to sleep of its own accord. I'm sure it'll be all right now. Thank you so very much. May I kill it? Honestly, I don't think that there's the slightest necessity for that. I'm sure that I'll be able to keep it in order now. I think the gradual process would be far better than killing it. The gradual process is of no use at all, said the angel. Don't you think so? Well, I, I'll think it over, and, and, and I'll think what you said very carefully. Honestly, I will. In fact, I'll let you, I would let you kill it now, but as a matter of fact, I'm not feeling very frightfully well today. It would be silly for me to do it now. I would need to be in good health for the operation. Some other day, perhaps. There is no other day. All days are present now. Get back. You're burning me. How can I let you kill it? You would kill me if you did. That is not true. Why? But you're hurting me now. I never said it wouldn't hurt you. I said it wouldn't kill you. Oh, I know you think I'm a coward, but it isn't that. Really, it isn't. I say, let me run back by tonight's bus and get an opinion from my own doctor, and I'll come again first moment that I can. This moment contains all moments. Why are you torturing me? You're jeering at me. How can I let you tear me to pieces? If you wanted to help me, why didn't you just kill it without asking me before I knew it? It would all be over by now if you had. I cannot kill it against your will. That is impossible. Have I your permission? The angel's hands were almost closed on the lizard, but not quite. And the lizard began chattering to the ghost so loud that even I could hear what it was saying. Be careful, it said. He can do what he says. He can kill me. One fatal word from you and he will. Then you'll be without me forever and ever. That's not normal. How could you live? You'd be only a sort of ghost, not a real man as you are now. He doesn't understand. He's only a cold, bloodless, abstract thing. It may be natural for him, but it isn't for us. Yes, yes, I know there are no real pleasures now, only dreams. But aren't, there, aren't they better than nothing? And I'll be good. I promise. I admit I, sometimes I've gone too far in the past. But I promise I won't do it again. I'll give you nothing but really nice dreams, all sweet and fresh and almost innocent. You might say quite innocent. Have I your permission, said the angel to the ghost. I know you're going to kill me. It won't. But supposing that it did. Oh, you're right. It would be better to be dead than to live with this creature. Then may I kill it. Oh, just go on and get it over with. Do what you like, bellowed the ghost, but ended whispering, Oh, God, help me. God, help me. The ghost goes on to become fully human, become fully real. The lizard turns into a stallion, and he rides the stallion off into the mountains. Now, once again, the theology's bad here, right? Nobody's coming from heaven, from hell to heaven. But the, the conversation, right? This is, this is exactly what is going on when we're tempted. These are the things. And this is, what it, this is what it feels like. What a perfect rendition. What a perfect picture in our minds of what is happening here. You see, it's not going to kill us, but it will hurt. And even as Christians, when we fight the temptation... It feels like there's no way we can continue on. There's no way that we can have the strength to keep doing this. It feels like it's going to overwhelm us, but it won't. We continue to fight, and we can win. So what are the effects of the death and resurrection? Well, once again, we are no longer enslaved to sin. We have been set free from it. 
You see, we were enslaved to it. That's all we knew. But if you're here this morning, you don't believe in Jesus. If you're enslaved to the sin that's in your heart, know something. That being set free from that is actually possible. That God looks at you as his creation. He loves you. And you're sitting, just imagine, you're sitting in this jail cell, chained to the wall, right? You can't move. You can't get up. All you can do is what's there. And God busts down that door and he opens those chains. And he will, he has the capability, and he will set you free if you repent, if you believe. God will set you free. You no longer have to be enslaved to that sin. And so the reality is, is that when we are set free, the, the sin no longer controls us. But see, here's the problem. And for many years in my life, what happened to me was that God came into that prison and he set me free, right? He opens the doors and he takes off the chains and then I just sat there. Well, the door's open, but I don't know, I don't know what to do. I'm just going to stay here because this is all I know and this is what's familiar. And so even though I had faith and even though I believed in Jesus, I was still just wallowing in my sin because I didn't understand that there was an entire world outside of that prison cell that God is offering to us. I sat there for a long time, many, many, many years. And finally, someone came along and said, hey, you don't have to stay here, right? The, the chains are off. The door is open. Why don't you go and explore? Why don't you go into the sunshine and see what God has to offer you? Look at the power that he has. And so I'm asking you this morning, do you fully embrace this truth that God has set you free? Is that how you think about yourself? Do you recognize the power that you have over your sin because the Holy Spirit is living within you? You see, the tables are turned. You were once enslaved to your sin. You were once doing its bidding no matter what you wanted to do. Now, the, other, the opposite is true. Your slave, I mean, your sin is enslaved, right? You don't have to do that. In fact, you can bring it to a point where you put your sin into chains by the power of the Holy Spirit. It has no power over you. Over and over and over again in this chapter, Paul says that we are dead to that sin. We don't have to be a part of it. We don't have to be with it. It doesn't have to have any power over us. Anytime that it does. After we have faith, it's only because we allow it to. A victory is possible, but I think we forget it. And here's a really important thing. When you're fighting this fight, you're not fighting it alone. You're fighting with every single other person in this room. You know, if all you needed was to hear somebody preach and teach the Bible, we, let's face it, there's a lot better people at this than me. Right? You can just go on the internet and find someone who preached this exact same passage far better than I did. The reason that we come to church is not just, well, let's come and we'll, we'll sing a few songs and we'll hear the word of God and we'll go home and then we'll be back next Sunday and that's the only interaction we have. These sins that you're fighting... The person sitting beside you, in front of you, and beside, and in the next section over, they're there to help you fight those fights. Church is about this community of believers that we can lean upon one another so that we can strengthen one another. You're not fighting it alone. These ministries that we're talking about, Awana's ministries, men's ministries, women's ministries, go to those things. Confess your sins to one another. Be, be united with each other the same way that you're united, united with Christ. Live with one another. Be in each other's lives. Because this is where you are able to fight more strongly, right? We read in Ecclesiastes back in the winter, that, that passage that we hear all the time at weddings, right? Two chords 
are stronger than one, a, a, what is it, a strand of three is not easily broken. That applies to you and your walk in the Christian life. Unite with other people within this church. Let them help you and then you help them when they're struggling, when they're falling. You're not walking this alone. And not only are your fellow brothers and sisters with you, but let's say you do find yourself 2 a.m., nobody can answer the phone and you're, you're fighting the hardest struggle that you've ever fought. Christ is there. The Holy Spirit is there. God is with you. Even in those moments when you feel alone, you're not doing it by yourself. God fights alongside of us. And guess what? Who's the victor? Jesus. God is the victor and we're standing with him and he will bring victory. Praise God. Praise God for his mercy. The last thing we're going to see here this morning is that this victory is forever. Nine, ten, <coughs> and eleven. Well, nine and ten mainly. Christ is never going to die again. So once again, if we share in his death and his resurrection, when we repent of our sins and we believe in Jesus, it is safe to assume... I think we have a promise right here that because Christ is never going to die again, we are united with him in that. That we never have to face that spiritual death again. His victory is forever. The death he died, he died once for all, right? And so now we share in that. The victory is forever. Jesus will never die again, and we are with him. Our spiritual eternity is established with God forever. Once we die to our sin, we never have to do this again. Now, we have a couple of statements that I think are worth exploring because they seem a little bit odd. In verse 9, Paul says, Death no longer has dominion over him. The him is obviously Jesus, right? What does this imply? That at one point, death did have dominion over Jesus. Do you ever think about death having power and dominion over Jesus? Now, a lot of the times we think about, yeah, Jesus, you know, he gave, up his, he gave up his spot in heaven. He comes to earth. And, man, what a sacrifice because he's on earth and he is amongst all the evil and he is, like, frustrated with Peter and all the dumb stuff that he says. And he's, like, fighting. He's trying to lead these disciples and it's like herding cats. And they just, like, don't get it and they're always confused. And so he's got all of these troubles and all of these problems and he's overcoming them every single day. And he's got the Pharisees and just, I mean, the list of troubles goes on and on and on. How often do you think about the fact that Jesus submitted himself to the dominion of death? That when he steps into this world, he allows his physical body, he knows that death is going to take him one day. At first it seems backwards, but in reality that's what's true. Paul tells us in Romans that the wages of sin is death. Period. Right? Jesus doesn't get to skip death. Why? Because our sins are put on him. And from that moment on, death has dominion over him. It is going to take him because the sins of the world have been placed upon his shoulders. Now this begs a question. Why does Jesus get to leave Hades, why doesn't he have to stay in hell? If our sins are dumped on him, is he not guilty of sins? Last week, I gave you a million-dollar word, right? Uh, antinomianism. So this week is substitutionary atonement, right? This is a big theological word for the morning. 
You see, when we look at the picture, we think, okay, if, if my sins were dumped on Jesus, that makes him guilty because he's the one who took the wrath. What's going on here? Well, the Bible teaches us what is called substitutionary atonement, that Jesus stepped in and my sins were laid on him, but he never became guilty of the sin that I put on him. So think about it in this way. If you rack up a bunch of debt, right? Let's say you spend all the credit cards. You've got $100,000 worth of debt. You're drowning in it, right? And then somebody comes along and pays the debt. Are they the ones guilty of racking up the charges? No. They're just the ones who paid it, right? I mean, in our world of credit scores and all the weird stuff, that, like their credit score doesn't go down because of your spending. And so they're just the one who paid the debt. Now, it's not a perfect analogy, but it, hopefully it helps paint a picture and help you understand what's happening. That Jesus is under the dominion of death because our sins are laid on him, but he is never guilty of any of those sins. He takes the wrath of God so that we don't have to. Because we couldn't. Because the wrath of God would have destroyed us, but it doesn't destroy him. And so in this life, when those sins are laid on him, he is under the dominion of death. But no more. Jesus dies. He is no longer under this dominion and no longer has control over him. The death that he died, he died once for all. It's another question. There's another statement worth looking at. Jesus dies once for all. This is verse 10. What does that mean? What's really interesting, right? Is this evidence that Christ died for the sins of every single human being who has ever lived, even those who won't believe in him, even those who die and never repent and never have faith and go to hell? Well, <laughs> depends. See, it's really funny. When you, read it, when you read a passage of Scripture and you already have a preconceived belief and understanding, you tend to read that into what you're seeing here, right? And so um, me and, and, and my tendency towards the ideas of limited atonement, I read it and it's like, well, that's not, that's not what it means. It says once for all, but it doesn't mean once for all. It must mean something else because, right, because Jesus... Well, we're not going to go there. But the idea, and, and what I want to say to you is this morning is I don't really want to rehash this doctrine over and over and over again, right? I know there is some, some misunderstanding, not misunderstanding, but just there's some debate about that within the church. And that is totally fine and normal and good. I do want to say that I read really extensively trying to find, trying to read people who disagree with me and trying to read people who agree. And I want to say something. First off, um, that you can read that statement from both sides, and, you, and I think you can walk away. Um, so as somebody who, who leans towards limited atonement, I read this and I think, well, what he's talking about is within the context of this passage. This death that he has died and the unity that we have is for those who are Christians. And so this once for all, it's the death of once for all for those who believe and not for everybody. And guess what? When I read people who, who I know believe in limited atonement, that's, that was their conclusion. And when I read people who commentated on this who don't believe in limited atonement, their conclusion was that Christ died for the sins of the whole world, even those who won't believe. Right? And so the, the whole reason, the whole point of bringing this up is I am trying to read these things and I am trying to be honest. And I, if, if you're anything like me, like I, I read my preconceived notions into statements. And I'm, I didn't want to do that. Um, and so 
the conclusion is, I don't know which one it goes to, right? I, I don't know which one of those is true. Um, I still am on that journey myself, reading and trying to understand and reading all these books. Um, there is a way to see it from both angles. And once again, the real, the real thing here is that I don't think that that should be something that divides us, right? We can have great conversation about this. We can even have debate about these things. And we can still then come together next week and worship together. This is not something that should divide our church. What, how we would read that statement, how we would read the Bible as a whole even. Um, we've talked about this before. And I just, I, I love seeing it and I love bringing it up because I want to reiterate and encourage over and over and over again. That the unity of the church is far more important than a lot of these ancillary issues, right? Second and third level issues. of I don't know what the Bible thing, uh, b- teaches on this, um, absolutely. And so I, I bring it up just to show that. Um, last thing to say is verse 11. And this is our challenge. To all these things that Paul has told us. And now he gives us the greatest challenge. So consider, you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. You're not partially, you're not partially resistant to your sin. You are dead to it. You must consider yourselves in this light. This is who you are. This is your identity. You are somebody who is believing in Jesus. Your identity is that you are dead to the sins that are tempting you, that are coming after you all the time. You have victory over those things. You can do that, right? You can fight and you can fight and never give up and you will have victory because Jesus has victory. Now, I've said this like a bunch of times in the last two weeks and it kind of feels, at least for me, it kind of feels like this name it and claim it sort of nonsense, right? Well, we're just going to declare that we have victory in Jesus and we win all the time. Like, what, what is happening here is that there's a difference between those who would claim that, right? The name it and claim it. Most of the time, that's like the spiritual, I mean, like physical blessings. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to claim and I'm going to name that I'm going to make a million dollars and then I'm going to claim it. It's nonsense, right? What we're naming and claiming is the promises of God. We're not coming up with something and saying, well, this is what I claim and this is what I name. No, God names it and we're going to claim it. I think a lot of the times we're far too timid. We say, yeah, it's a promise from God, but I don't really see it happening. God promised it. He has promised it, right? He names it. We should claim it. We should consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God. Every single time that temptation comes, if you don't know how to fight it, repeat that verse. I am dead to sin. God has promised me that through the Holy Spirit, I can be dead to sin. I am dead to sin. This sin, this temptation, Satan, you're coming at me, and I don't care because I'm dead to that. No more. I'm not alive to that anymore. And and he's going to keep coming. He's not just going to hear that once and be like, oh, well, okay, and move on. He's going to come at you over and over, sometimes for hours, days, weeks, and months. And you just keep repeating back to him. He's going to lie to you, and you repeat the truth over and over again. Name that truth. However many millions, trillions of times it takes until the temptation is abated. Don't stop fighting. Verse 11, you must consider yourselves dead to sin, and alive to God in Christ Jesus. When I said that it's not an easy task, that's not an easy task. But it is the power that God has granted us. That is what he has given to us. Don't ever forget it. Don't ever let yourself 
fall prey to sin because you think, ah, there's no way I'm going to be able to fight. There's no way I'm going to be able to win. You are dead to that sin, and you are alive to God. Let's pray. Father God, we love you. And we do not deserve to find our life in you, but you have given it to us anyway. Lord, we are so grateful. Lord, we know this is true. As we saw in verse 6, we know these things. Our struggle is to remember it. Our struggle is to live as if they are true, to apply what we know into our life. Apply what we know into the struggle against temptation. Father, I know I give up far too easily. Lord, please, strengthen my faith. Strengthen the faith faith of everyone in this room that we can fight and fight and fight and never give up. Lord, you have made this promise to us that we are alive in you, that we are dead to our sin. Help us to believe it more deeply. Help us to apply it more regularly every moment of every day in the face of every temptation that we can remember this truth that we can fight and fight thank you jesus we love you amen